Perhaps Harsco's transfer pricing leader, Willie Ong, said it best when he told The Fiona Show, when it comes to transfer pricing, it's not a question of if you will get audited, it's a question of when. Between BEPS, country-by-country -country reporting, possible public country-by-country -country reporting, in the EU's new DOC6 reporting requirement, tax transparency has become about as see-through as an effective piece of lingerie. And for many M&Es, that means transfer pricing audits are unavoidable. Hello, everyone. It's Matthew DeMello, your host of The Fiona Show, Cross-Border Solutions' weekly transfer pricing podcast. And today we're talking about transfer pricing audit prep. I mean, going through an audit doesn't have to bring you down. In fact, at times, it can be an opportunity to shine. Look at how proactive you are, how organized, how responsive, how amazing. But cooperating with tax authorities earns you more than just gold stars. Being responsive to their audit requests can minimize penalties and adjustments. In other words, it puts money in your pocket. So how do you ace an audit? Here's a hint. You start well before you receive an information request from a tax authority. But don't take it from me. Tax attorney, transfer pricing advisor, former competent authority analyst, repeat Fiona show expert, not to mention founder and owner of Montagani Tax in Washington, D.C. Barbara Montagani is here to walk you through it. Like always, you can earn CPE credits for listening to this podcast. Here's how it works. We're planting three CPE code words in this episode. Email all three to the Fiona show at all one word, the Fiona show at xbs.ai and we'll reply with your certificate. But before we jump into the fun world of transfer pricing investigations, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Looks like Serbia is ready to play by the rules, its own rules anyway. The Ministry of Finance published a rule book to outline arm's length interest rates for 2020. The resource guide went into effect on March 14th, and it provides interest rates for taxpayers who have or will receive funding from related parties in 2020. We know what you're thinking. A rule book is about as forgiving as a corset. But this regulation comes with an element of choice. Surprise, surprise. Taxpayers have the option to use the rule book specified interest rates or, as specified in the corporate income tax law, use the OECD guidelines to verify revenue on arm's length interest expenses. It's sort of like the matrix for taxpayers. Which pill do you swallow? The red or the blue? The selected interest rates will also be applied to all intercompany loans, along with the interest income and expense during 2020, regardless of when the loan took place. It looks like Serbia's tax authority just wants us all to be on the same page of their rulebook, that is. Transfer pricing isn't a day at the beach in the British Virgin Islands. The island's international tax authority is ready to accept country-by-country country reports from March 2020 and onward. Submissions will only be accepted by electronic portal. Sorry, no emails. Save the risky business for Tom Cruise. Poland is implementing new rules that require multinationals to provide even more information, which will be used in a transfer pricing risk assessment. So what exactly are they asking for other than Polish taxpayer pushback? Results of the comparable analyses with chartable transactions and documentation of all controlled transactions, even the ones that aren't required in your transfer pricing documentation. Now, if you're thinking, wait a minute, didn't Poland introduce this in 2018? Yes, but in early 2020, a legislative draft increased the bandwidth of the information that will be required for 2021.
Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, Big Four. We've got the answer. Cross-Border Solutions AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp barbara you've been on the show a few times and you know how we roll uh, let's learn even more just a little bit about you you've been a tax attorney now for more than 20 years do clients still surprise you and how i i could say that they surprise me um when they don't take my stage advice i think that Certainly over the last few years with the country by country and with all of the, the transparency being the, the code word, uh, certainly we're all trying to get used to um, that world. Uh, yeah, sometimes they'll surprise me with, can we do X? And then you frown and say, no, I don't think so. It's like, oh, okay. Yes, and, and let's flip it. What are your clients most surprised to learn about their own transfer pricing and working with you? Actually, to be honest, and at this point in my career, I have my carefully selected group of clients who are quite, actually quite on top of their transfer pricing. Um, so they might be sometimes surprised at what they're asked about by a tax authority. Um, certainly they have been anxious about what the impact might be of the first exchange of country by country reports and whether that was going to open the floodgates of adjustments. But um, my clients tend to have a pretty good handle on their, on their situation. But I'm sure you've had plenty of work with plenty of folks in the past, your experience, whether or not they're your clients currently, where they have some element of surprise of, of maybe what's in that documentation. I know uh, that's something I hear from our folks in the professional services group all the time, uh, that, that sort of situation with clients, or at least that you know that that's a very bad day for them, or even if it's a, a strict minority of cases, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Things have sort of evolved so that, you know, with all of the, you know, yapping about digital and the fact that there now seems to be a value associated with just having a market that exists, that's certainly a whole element that um, the companies that are struggling with just figuring it out from the first part and how things have changed. You can't just do your transfer pricing and then put it away and 
not look at it for a few years. Absolutely. And completely off topic, but how is it? You're from D.C. How did you become a Red Sox fan? I'm from New England. I'm indoctrinated. I have an excuse. What's yours? My excuse is that I am a native Granite Stater. Ah, that's it. So the Red Sox are my birth team. Yeah, that that makes sense. There's a birth team and then there's a a team you grow with. If you're Mm -hmm. lucky enough to live in an area that, you know, has a has baseball within proximity. And then as you move along in your life, you have, you know, the Nationals are my are my current team, but they don't supplant the Red Sox. If, in fact, the Red Sox were to play the Nationals in the World Series, I'd be wearing a Red Sox hat. Yeah, that's basically how I feel about the Mets since I've moved to New York, so I can very much relate. That's my chosen team for my new homeland, uh, if only because I can't get the Boston sports networks around here. Uh, But you've been working, advising companies on transfer pricing and helping them through the audit process for a long time. How have you seen the transfer pricing audit process evolve over the years? I think the biggest um, changes that I've seen have really been driven by technology. Back in the day, as it were, you would get IDRs and they would be handed to you on a piece of paper and then you would prepare things and you would hand them back to the field. When I was at IRS, you could fax things, but email was challenging now because there was the danger of exposure and certainly the IRS takes its uh, requirements of keeping taxpayer data confidential that is in code section 6103. Everybody takes that very seriously. Um, so now I think technology has allowed us to do things like download things to a thumb drive and drop it off. Or you have encrypted email um, that you can agree with IRS or I assume with other tax authorities to um you know, to make sure that anything that you're sending that's confidential is sent encrypted. Um, You can also have video calls uh, instead of in-person meetings, which, you know, with this whole coronavirus thing going on, that's particularly important, presumably right now, if you have had a meeting scheduled in person, certainly I think people are scrambling to try and come up with virtual meetings. Um, but I think that the biggest change, um, the biggest change has been technology. I think that the other big change has been the scope of the number of other countries that have any interest in transfer pricing. Right. There's a zillion IRSs now and they all rival the IRS for intensity. Yeah. And Barbara, in your experience as a transfer pricing and tax attorney, what are some common triggers for transfer pricing audits? Um, You know, some of them are the ones you'd expect. So when you have a significant presence in a tax haven country, if you have transferred IP outside of the U.S. within the last year, um, if you've had a major acquisition or a disposition, if you have had significant profit fluctuations, particularly, I would say, profit fluctuations in, the, in your foreign affiliate countries that may be driven by conditions unique to that country, um, you might have yet um, questions 
uh, about that. And so you have to explain sort of what's going on. Right. And I know we've noticed here at Cross Border that a lot of the tax authorities are developing these self-risk assessments in terms of auditing or how they're doing their own risk assessments. If it's not like a self-evaluating one, maybe maybe the best uh, example of that is Australia. Is that changing the audit layout at all? No. I mean, they've always done that. It's not like the, it's not like I mean, auditors have to pick, right? They have to pick and choose. So they they don't audit every single company. Right. So they're, you know, we're all sort of now going, oh my God, and there's risk assessment. And well, they've always had risk assessment and okay. they've always run, they've always run ratios and they've always, I mean, that, there's nothing new there. I think that again, go back to the T word, um, the transparency around it. And the ways in which, for example, OECD with regard to the country by country report, you know, has identified particular factors that might come out of a CBCR that would cause a particular tax authority to look at you more closely. Either you have a lot of revenue in a country where you don't have a lot of employees or you have, you know, you have significant fluctuations or those sorts of things. But risk assessment tools are not new the particular factors that a tax authority might look at when, when doing their risk assessment may have evolved over time, but some of this isn't new. And they are not new, but there are a few of note today that have grown so robust, they kind of stand out among the crowd. I, I, the UK comes to mind, but I know with Australia, uh, they have a whole color-coded system, a, a red zone and a green zone. It's it, it's a very uh, overt system as compared to other uh, self-assessment, self-risk assessment systems across the world. ATO's been doing that sort of thing for a long time. R- right. They right. may not have had colors. I mean, ATO has, has put Australian companies into different categories since forever since for as long as I've known. And if you have particular characteristics, then you <laughs> go into um, a riskier, more likely to be audited category if you have less risky. So, I mean, they have, they have sort of grouped their companies into different groupings for a while. They may have different ways of doing it now, and they may mm-hmm. now ask the, the taxpayers themselves to help them by running their own numbers. But Australia has been somewhat ahead of the field in that. And I think partly because it is a relatively smaller country, it, you know, it, 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 it's got to stay ahead of the curve. And let's just take a quick break to ask Fiona. Fiona, what is the best way to avoid a transfer pricing audit? First off, make sure your transfer pricing policy reflects the reality of your business. Keep supporting documentation and evidence for each transaction and always prepare documentation contemporaneously. Prepare hyperlocalized documentation and also listen to tax authorities. When they want information within 30 days, make sure you deliver it in 30 days. And before we move on, let me interrupt here with our first CPE code word, and that code word is agreeable, as in it helps to be agreeable when you're dealing with tax authorities. Uh, Barbara, so just given the scope of normal transfer pricing audits, and I know this is a a wide-ranging question, but um, is there a range of how long they they usually take? Oh, wow. I Um, I know that's an open-ended question that, that, that could go a lot of ways, but... yeah. 
this week, uh, it depends a lot on what the IRS is looking at, on why you were selected. Just I can just speak to the U.S. depends on what factors triggered your audit in the first place. Did they, um, you know, did they find, are, are you undergoing a large audit and transfer pricing just becomes part of it? Are they, you know, they're doing just an audit and they say to the IE, here's this company. It depends on how many IDRs they issue. I mean, if they, if they read through your documentation, which is pretty much the first, the first IDR they ask you for your documentation, right? They may ask you for mm-hmm. other things, but they definitely ask you for that. And if they read it in, like the hair stands up on their neck, then maybe you get more IDR. There's a whole lot of factors that can go into it. I might also add that it depends on whether we're in a pandemic or not. <laughs> yes, yes, a pandemic. But uh, obviously, you know, Facebook's audit is going to be, say, for what they have going on with the cost-sharing arrangement dispute that they have going for 7 to $8 billion, and you know a lot of finger-pointing going around, uh, going on there. Uh, so that audit is going to take, that's a five-year, that's a big audit. That's a monster. It's, it's the size of the company. It's the amount of money involved. But if we're talking about a smaller company. Let me just interrupt. Right, go ahead. Yes. I think we tend to sometimes think that the number of zeros is directly related to the complexity and sometimes that's not true. Right. There could be a lot of money at risk, and it comes down to a relatively simple question or issue. Now, I'm not suggesting that that is Facebook. I know nothing about Facebook. I don't know what the issues mm-hmm. are, but I would say that, that sometimes the dispute itself boils down to a relatively simple question. There just happen to be a lot of zeros. Because of the number of zeros, that may cause the audit process to be more extensive. It may cause the time to be expanded, but it's not necessarily because of the difficulty of the questions themselves, but just the stake, the, you know, the, the amounts that are at stake. If you are auditing Facebook, you are certainly going to ask every question. And if you are representing Facebook, you are going to make sure that you fully answer every question that you're asked and perhaps questions mm-hmm. that you aren't asked. But the, you know, the, the questions are, I mean, transfer pricing just isn't, I know I've said this before, but transfer pricing just kind of isn't that hard. Right. right. Uh, well, in, in terms of the complexity of the question, Facebook, that case seems very straightforward, whereas something uh, maybe more like the dispute with Altera that calls more into question and might be more consuming from a conceptual standpoint rather than a numbers or exponent or exponential standpoint comparatively. Comparatively, you know, you get you get to be old and you do this long enough, and everything comes down to who gets the dollar. Yeah, is it me or is it Canada? Is it me? And certainly, when I was at IRS, we we would think strongly about you know, do we have a principled reason? you know, push back, um, because if we don't, then, you know, you've given up money from the U.S. Treasury. And, and do you think that the culture of audits has become more intense because there's m- that more of that competition between countries 
to collect like uh, audits that might have been considered back in the 90s or the early aughts are given a completely different treatment today because the mentality undergone by the tax authority is I've got to get that money not Australia. Yeah, I think that, you know, the amount of, you know, certainly the zeros have increased. Mm -hmm. I think also, and because of technology, there are so many different ways to actually do business that it's not the standard model. Oh, I distribute product in X country. Therefore, I will have a warehouse. Therefore, I will have, you know, that, the models are different, and so, um, and the number of players that there are trying to put their hands on more tax dollars um, has expanded greatly. So you have countries now doing transfer pricing audits, looking at transfer pricing that certainly in the 90s you didn't have. Right, right. And just to nail down the question I'm asking there, do you think now they go about the audit differently because they know that that competition is there. If I don't get this, Canada will get this. Yeah, I'm not sure that I can say, I'm not sure I would say that they go about it, that the tax authorities go about it differently. Because the tax authorities are always looking to confirm that they have wrong every single dollar out of you. I I think it creates real challenges for companies that are operating in all these various countries to try to, you know, you do your transfer pricing and you get your, and you get your pricing and you get results in particular countries and you kind of do your best with it. But at this point, you don't know when a country might say, you know, I don't, I just don't think that's enough. And I think we're going to do this and that and the other thing. So, you know, I really think that it's, that it's, companies for whom the challenges really are more so than than the auditors in the particular country. Right. And, and by the time they've given it to the IRS and then Canada comes around, it's like, how much uh, of a pot of gold do you have left necessarily? Or how much do you have left in the bag? Uh, but let's say, you know, you have some of these triggers going in. Maybe you've been through a merger, you transact with entities and tax havens, you've had profit fluctuations, one of these kinds of targets on your back. When do you start preparing for an audit? Well, you start preparing for an audit about probably about five years before you actually have it. So, so when you are going through your merger, you are going to be constantly evaluating. I mean, if you're, if you're well organized and, and have a good solid tax function, you are going to be looking at those at the entire picture of the merger or the disposition or whatever uh, and factoring the transfer pricing implications into that. So um, in terms of preparing for an audit, if you wait until you get the IDR to start thinking about it, then it's going to be a very long and painful road for you. So you really, more and more, and that's another thing I think I have seen a huge difference in the 25 years that I've been at this, where you actually do have to sort of be constantly monitoring so that if you get an audit notice, you don't go, oh, okay, where is that documentation? I've got it somewhere, I'll send it to them. I mean, that's if you, you know, if you have a lot of zeros and, 
you know going in that this transaction does have significant transfer pricing implications. And you better have your story prepared long before a field examiner decides to take a look at you. And what is a taxpayer's objective in an audit? Well, you know, the short and snarky answer is to <laughs> avoid an adjustment. But, but the serious answer is, you know, the taxpayer's objective during an audit is to help the auditor lead the auditor, explain to the auditor in a way that the auditor ends up at the place that you want the auditor to be. So own the narrative, basically. Yes. And the, you need to be able to, when you're starting with an audit, and this is more true now than it ever was, you need to be enormously cooperative. You need to you know, help the auditor see, like, look at the situation in the way that you look at it and in the way that shows that you are complying with the Young standard and so forth and so forth. So respond to your IDRs immediately. I was just, I've just been involved in a case where, you know, we've gotten a lot of IDRs and we always respond at least a week to 10 days before the deadline. And that has left us in a very, very good position in terms of we are perceived by the government as being a good cooperative taxpayer. So it's no longer the case that you can play hide the ball and think it isn't going to come back to bite you. The burden of proof is not on the taxpayer, so we're clear. The burden of proof for an adjustment ultimately is on the government. Like, if they make an adjustment of your taxes and you go in and say, the government did this, it's bad, the burden of proof on the government to establish that, in fact, the adjustment's correct. Now, the burden of proof may, in an audit, lay on the taxpayer to persuade the auditor that they have, um, you know, that, that they have engaged in arm's-length transactions, but taxpayer doesn't have any burden of proof in terms of proving that they're, uh, I do not believe I could be completely wrong about that. Well, just on where that might be coming from, I I know that's something uh, that's often repeated in the hallways here at Cross Border with regards to the audit, uh, audit process, but you seem to be talking about the difference between the audit process in which, yes, you will do better by yourself by acting as though the burden of proof is entirely on you because you want to own the narrative, but in the court of law, the court of law is the court of law. And we all learned in eighth grade that the burden of proof uh, at least falls uh, on the government or the plaintiff. When, when the IRS makes an adjustment of your taxes and you challenge that, then it's up to the tax, it's up to the IRS to establish that the adjustment's correct. But mm-hmm. as a realistic, realistically, when you are um, facing a skeptical field examiner, it most certainly is the burden is on you to persuade that examiner that your transfer prices are A-OK. Right, right. And and just to be clear about that phrase, uh, you know, the burden burden of proof is on the taxpayer and why this often is said in transfer pricing is if you treat your audit that way, it should never get to the point 
or that's rather the best strategy to not let it get to the point uh, of getting uh, of involving yourself in litigation. Basically. Well, of getting an adjustment at all. Right, or an yeah, adjustment. Adjustment that you don't agree with or, you know. And we're going to take a brief break for our second CPE code word. And that word is stressful, as in going through a transfer pricing audit or a COVID-19 quarantine can be very stressful. Uh, And Barbara, how long after a transfer pricing transaction does an audit usually take place? It depends, I guess, on when you audit. I mean, the U.S. has three years from the date that you file your return to make an adjustment. So, you know, the transaction occurs in year one and you file your return September 15th of year two, your year one return. And typically, unless the taxpayer agrees to extend the statute, the statute expires years from the date that you file your return. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. And so the audit processes are different around the world. What is the transfer pricing audit process in the United States? The standard audit process, you typically, you, you get a letter notifying you that, you know, they're going to audit you. It depends on, you know, if it's a domestic audit and transfer pricing is a part of it, then there's a whole host of IDRs that you might get. Uh, the first IDR is always for your transfer pricing documentation. I don't know how country-by-country country reporting may have changed, you know, the initial letter, but typically it's like, here, taxpayer, we're going to audit you. It's going to begin on next date. Here's some initial IDRs. You answer them. You start the back and forth. One of the first things they usually ask you to do, frankly, is to spend the statute the end of the audit. Right. And what additional information or documents might be requested in an IDR? You know, it sort of depends on what they're looking at you for. The first IDR is always give me your transfer pricing documentation. Then once they have reviewed that, there may be, you know, they're going to ask for agreements. Intercompany agreements are a standard thing to ask for. Any kind of financials, they might ask you for downloads from various um, SAP systems. They may ask you to outline for them how an intercompany transaction takes place. It sort of depends on, again, on how, on how well your transfer pricing documentation leads the auditor to the point where he or she thinks 
nothing to see here. <laughs> right, right. That's the end goal uh, or the ideal outlook. Nothing to see here and have that be accepted. Uh, besides official documents, what might tax authorities request? Again, they, they can request all sorts of things. Um, internal company documents, memos that, you know, if you've undergone, let's say you've undergone a um, reorganization, they may ask you for internal memos that describe the reorganization, PowerPoint slides that lay out, you know, how things are changing, pretty much anything that isn't, you know, trade secrets gets into a mushy sort of place in terms of, you know, can you refuse to give them something because you say it's a trade secret? It's very, very broad what they can ask for and what they will ask for really depends on how many questions they still have after they've looked at your documentation and seen your initial financial information. And even in that context, is there anything that tax authorities aren't allowed to request during an audit? You know, I will have to say I don't know is the answer to that question. Um, all, all, you know, they can't ask for, I don't know, access to your personal Twitter account or something if you're the CEO. But, I mean, I think that any relevant, and again, tax authorities are typically asking for uh, financial data that will either prove or challenge the result that you've reported on your tax return. So trade secrets is a is an issue, um, but sixty one hundred three does require the um, the government to keep confidential, as in within the very small number of people who actually need to see it, um, all information that they get from from a. Um, from a taxpayer. And tell us what happens to that transfer pricing documentation, that information once it's in the hands of tax authorities. What do they do with it? Um, they read it, depending on if they've gotten it in soft copy or hard copy. Uh, they set up a, you know, a secure uh, file or whatever in a, on a server where they store it all. Um, to the extent that you have hard copy, it goes into secure files that get lost. I'm not 100% sure it's a good question, actually, whether, like, at what point do they get rid of anything that they've, they've collected? And I honestly don't know enough about the internal protocols of the field to know exactly how long they keep things until they, you know, destroy them through, you know, the usual destruction, and they obviously don't keep them forever. And does a company have to make any disclosures about being under audit? Oh, so you're talking about a public company. Because private companies don't have to tell anybody anything. They may have, they, well, they have a duty of care to the shareholders, blah, blah, blah. But it's not like if I'm a private company that's not listed on the stock exchange that I have to tell the general public anything. I think that um, certainly if you're a public company and there is, a um, uncertain tax position, for example, that is created by the fact that you are under audit for a particular year, it, you know, that will have to be disclosed presumably in your financial statements. You know, you disclose your UTPs every year. So for public companies that, you know, you would, you would be disclosing. But 
for private companies, there's, you know, there's no, um, there's nothing that a private company has to tell anybody about anything. And frankly, the fact that you're undergoing a tax audit, the IRS certainly can't tell anybody. Right, right. And uh, just to interrupt very quickly for our last CPE code word, and that word is localize, as in it's important to localize documentation to avoid transfer pricing audits. Uh, Barbara, how do you strategize for an audit when transfer pricing personnel may have changed? From the ones who prepared the documents? Yes. yes. Uh, this is a standard situation, truly. Um, the sort of the bigger that the company is, and even if you're, um, you know, if you have a particular advisor that has prepared the documentation, you could have a situation where both the outside advisor and the internal personnel have changed. Um, often, but not always, uh, you do have uh, the same advisors when the audit comes up that you had when the transactions were either structured or documented or whatever. Um, it's uh, like the first thing you do have to do is just all, all, almost sit there with like a whiteboard and write down everyone's name and who handled this transaction flow during these years and who handled it in these years and is this person still there and do they have a different role now and can you, you know, um, and there are all sorts of things like we've changed our internal system and we've upgraded the whole thing and sometimes maybe we haven't kept really close track of the transfer pricing transactions. So transfer pricing personnel frequently has changed from the staff that um, prepared the information to the staff that's there now. The outside advisors, more often, there's consistency there. Um, but you just have to go back and see if you can follow with, who's the new Bob? Like, oh, Bob did that. Okay, who's the new Bob? And then you sort of go from there. So do you find that to be a big issue when you're dealing with clients, as in the fact that somebody hasn't been there since the beginning of the transaction? Oh, yeah and now has to answer for it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think people change, and it depends on, you know, it certainly depends on, you know, what your audit cycle is, and um, it's not uncommon. You, you just need to have good, solid, internal process manuals um, so that you can figure out, uh, even if, again, if Bob isn't there, that, you know, there's a process manual that, that shows you what what Bob did and what the new Bob is doing. And that's really process documents and policy documents, sort of the front end, as opposed to the documentation, which is sort of the back end. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the process part of it versus just being thorough in your documentation and your analysis. Yeah. And, and does that become easier with technology? Yes and no. As long as the technology remains relatively stable, I suppose, yes. Um, but again, having, having assisted clients who are going through a big, huge change in their internal systems, it can be challenging. You were talking about before the sort of competition between countries. If, if, you know, if I don't get it, Australia is going to get it. Uh, but there's also the relatively new phenomenon that they're working together to file joint audits. Tell us a little bit about joint audits. How do they work? 
Um, join audits. Uh, there's a group, I want to say seven or eight countries that have sort of all said that they'd like to like look at transfer pricing sort of collectively. And again, when you're not in a pandemic, you try and set up meetings. You will have an opening meeting. You will have um, the tax authorities from the various countries. There, there's a fair amount of work before you ever actually sit down to discuss the audit um, because obviously if you have multiple countries that are auditing the taxpayer at the same time, then they all are going to have their own concerns. So it's uh, for the taxpayer perspective, on the one hand, you can get everybody deal with everybody's questions sort of at the same time. So there's that, you don't have to sort of, a year later suddenly get an audit notice. And it also in some ways gives you an opportunity to again tell your consistent story to everybody so that they all hear the same thing, they all understand the facts the same way. And so it's it's really a uh, a way to conserve resources for everyone. Is there a downside for the taxpayer? Again, my flip answer is not if the taxpayers actually comply with the arms length standard. I mean, um for taxpayers who may take really aggressive positions on their return, then, yeah, there could be a downside to having more than one com- country look at you at the same time. But to the extent that you are not engaged in particularly tax-aggressive strategies, then, you know, it can be a benefit to get a lot of, you know, a number of countries sort of out of the way, if you will, at the same time, and then you sort of close the book on that cycle, whether it's a year or three years or four years or however many years. And what is the advice that you give to taxpayers when meeting with auditors? My first advice, my first advice, of course, is always have me with you. The second <laughs> advice is you basically rehearse. You rehearse it in advance. I mean, you sit there if you're going to have a meeting with an auditor, the auditor has given you a list of questions that he or she is going to ask you about. And so you just, you know, practice, practice, practice. You, you know what you're going to say to the extent that they throw you a curve and ask you about something that you didn't think they were going to ask you about. You can always say that's very interesting. Interesting is a very good word. That's very interesting. We weren't prepared for that. We'd like, to get back to you, can we arrange for another time? I think the vision of, you know, the auditor as the snidely whiplash trying to find what's there, even when there isn't anything there, I mean, the auditors just really, their job is to be able to look at your, at your results and confirm that you've complied with the arm's length standard. That's for, you know, every one of the auditors in all the countries. Um, so. You know, I would definitely say don't walk in there without having a pretty good idea of what you're going to say to them in advance. You know, be as transparent as possible. And like I said, if you have an extremely aggressive tax position, you've got to know that going in. You know, figure this out. This reminds what me of Robert Duvall's character in a civil action. I don't. I don't know if you've ever seen it, uh, but it's a movie about so-called ambulance chasers as lawyers and. He says to a group of students uh, teaching in a professorial nature that the first words out of a lawyer's mouth 
if they suddenly wake up in a courtroom, you know, not knowing what's going on should be those words should be objection, um, no matter what the circumstance. So you're saying it's a little bit like that. Interesting. Yeah, when in doubt, just say, you know, I don't know, we weren't prepared. If someone, if they start asking you about something that, that you did not believe was on your agenda, then you're certainly allowed to say, we weren't really prepared for that. Can we address that later? Or can you explain more? I mean, it's not mm-hmm. like you're sitting in a room with a human being. And you can have a back and forth with them. And some, you know, some may be more skeptical than others. And, you know, some companies over time have developed perhaps less pleasant relationships with their audit team. And some have, you know, more pleasant relationships with the audit team. But it's, it's, you know, it's just a question that, if they ask you a question that you're not sure of the answer, do not guess. Do you find that clients often, or even if it's a good thing, do you, do you find that they uh, err on the side of offering up too much information in that case, like maybe over-answering, if, if that's such a thing? It depends on the client. Again, um, certainly the, the clients that I work with are uh, always want to make sure that they answer questions as fully as they can. Sometimes you don't understand the question that the auditor's asking and you have to say, are you asking this? Or are you asking that? Are you asking some other thing? Realistically, the, every company I have ever worked with has wanted, obviously you always want the audit to end. You want the audit to go away. And for the most part, whereas maybe 30, you know, before the documentation requirements, when you were dealing with the litigation of the cases that were litigated in the 70s, where, you know, sometimes companies did give the IRS a whole box of documents in German. You know, here, you want to hear about my German my German affiliate, there's a bunch of stuff in German. I mean, those sorts of games, like no sensible company of any size tries to play those games anymore, at least with regard to their transfer pricing. You mentioned a sort of best case scenario, the audit goes away. Let's talk a little bit about what the best case scenario looks like. How does an audit close? I mean, at the end of it, in the U.S., you you know, the auditors, the, the IE, um, I believe will send you a letter saying we have decided to close your audit with no adjustment. Done and done. Um, you know, and the fact that you don't have a transfer pricing adjustment doesn't mean that, you know, I don't know whether anything else is being undertaken. The domestic team, the domestic team manager typically runs the entire audit. So to the extent that the transfer pricing aspect of it is closed, they'll say, thank you, we have enough, and we've decided not to make an adjustment. That's what you really want them to say. Right, um, right. Or, you know, you get your you get your NOPA, and then you've got your 30 days to decide whether you want to go to appeals and or, and or you know, get appeals and litigate, and or, uh, if it's a treaty country, file for competent authority assistance and bring appeals into that form. And, and for more draw, long drawn out processes, you know, the, the kinds of audits that last for years, is there a kind of 
uh, indicator, like or something that says the winds are blowing that way that folks could look for, uh, even as an auditor. In the U.S., the IEs are so slam. The IRS again now, I think, as it has gone through in other periods, you know, you have retirement and maybe you don't have hiring authority. And so the audit teams sort of do the best they can. Obviously, I guess if you're a big public company, if you're Facebook, if you're Amazon, if you're, I don't know, Microsoft, if you're Apple, and you get embroiled in a in a transfer pricing audit situation, you kind of assume that at some point, somebody's going to decide you did it wrong, whether it's the U.S. or Canada or Japan or Germany or whoever. They, you know, it's not like they have revenue goals, at least in the U.S. I don't know about other countries. But the idea is to really help them, again, be able to see your company the way you see it and thereby conclude that the intercompany transactions you've engaged in were consistent with the arm's length standard. And how you do that, you know, will depend on a lot of factors. Like, for example, if it really is consistent with the arm's length standard. And just wondering, if you're under audit or if you've been through an audit, do you think that affects the future of, of other possible audits? In other words, now that you've been audited by the U.S., are they more likely to look through your information more carefully the following year? Do you think that then your company becomes sort of a red flag in and of itself? It just it. No, just I would matter. say no. I would say that um, because unless they have looked at your information, concluded that you made a hash of your transfer pricing and that you owe boatloads of money and they, they issue a big adjustment, well, then you might then be on the radar. You know, once you're on audit and you've gotten an adjustment, they may just want to keep looking at your years as they come up. But certainly to the extent that they close your audit with no adjustment or small adjustment or whatever, and you've established for them that you're a compliant taxpayer, then you're not likely to, you know, be subject to another audit immediately if there is something that happens that causes them to decide that they want to audit you again. You do have some big business event that could significantly impact your transfer pricing, then maybe, but... Once you've gone through the audit, if you keep doing things the same way that you were doing them when they audited you, then they're not likely to pick you up again. Or if they do, you just say, see, I'm doing the same thing as I was before. And then they say, oh, okay, never mind. And you were saying before, honesty, as the proverb goes, honesty is the best policy. If you're compliant, you'll have the least to worry about. But aside from just being compliant, what are the best preventative measures companies can take against audits? Well, I can't, I can't go too much past compliance. I mean, because every element of what I'm about to say involves compliance. So, you know, make sure you have a written down transfer pricing policy. Make sure that you're Intercompany agreements are up to date. Um, that is that is someplace where I think I have seen clients. Um, you know, you you put an agreement in place 
things change, you start changing how you're doing things, but maybe you don't go back and redo the intercompany agreement. So those sorts of things are just sort of staying on top of it so that if you do have any significant change, that you address that sort of proactively, um, both internally in your systems, in your documentation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that you know that, because compl- compliance is not this blanket thing like, I am hereby compliant and I will always be compliant. Like, mm-hmm. compliance is an annual uh, consideration and you're the person or the people or the group or whoever who sort of manages the transfer pricing compliance, if you will, um, you know, go through every year picking off the boxes to make sure that things, Oh, here's a new transaction that we didn't have last year. Where'd we, where'd right, we, right, right. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. Right, and I know for a lot of folks I've spoken to at our client summits. Um, you know, they tell me compliance is the goal. They are, so to speak, as as you were saying before, they are the new Bob. And the last Bob maybe didn't check all the boxes, and they're walking into a situation and finding out what those boxes are, uh, checking them off themselves. So, especially for everybody listening who falls into that camp, compliance is is a goal, a, a destination rather. Uh, maybe than than what comprises the journey itself. Uh, but let's just take a quick moment to ask Fiona. Fiona, what are some preventative measures in terms of transfer pricing audits? Hyperlocalized documentation is your best defense against audits. This means specific information presented in specific formats, often in local languages. You can't rely on one-size-fits-all reports. Right. Robust documentation, meeting functional analyses, answering questions before tax authorities have their chance or a reason to ask them. This all sounds like a plan. And as always, we really appreciate you coming on board with us to share your vast experience, Barbara. But now it's time for my favorite part of the show, as you well know, what we want to know. And Barbara, you remember how this works. We're putting you in the hot seat. You're going to be in the hot seat many, many times with me. So you might want to get used to it. Uh, Throwing a rapid fire round of questions your way. No thinking, only answers. Are you ready? I am ready. That was question one. Question two, name a skill you think is underrated in today's transfer pricing industry. I'm going to say that we perhaps undervalue the ability to write a cogent explanation of what all those numbers are. 
Hypothetically, one colleague describes you as super smart, another as hardworking. Which description are you most proud of and why? I would definitely say this, the hard, super hardworking. Not that I don't, of course, also think that I am super smart, but, um, but I think that the hardworking part of it, I certainly, um, is the sort of thing that you have control over, right? You don't have control over, uh, what, you know, what cellular organization in your brain you have, but you certainly have control over the ability to work hard and, you know, take additional steps and, um, to make sure that pretty much in everything you do, whether it's, you know, in your work or in your play or in, you know, whatever that you, um, that you give the, the, uh, I, I you know, I, I I'm not even going to say it. I was going to say give the 100%, but I can't say it because it's too trite. You know, and, and that just, uh, brings us back to, folks who can in, write cogently uh, about these issues, uh, English majors. And as they say in uh, among English majors, uh, the reason a cliche is cliche is because it's the truth, which means we know you're super smart, you're super hardworking. Barbara, you're also a huge success story. What advice do you have for other women trying to make it in tax and nevertheless persist, right? Um, don't take no for an answer. I think that we sometimes, not that you, you know, act all obnoxious and stomp around or whatever, but sometimes you have to, you know, persistence is a good thing. Absolutely. And, and no doubt throughout your career, though, you've had to hire a fair amount of people. How do you know when you found the right person for the job? I think you know that you have found the right person for the job. Well, A, when they successfully do the job. But um, I also, I have spent a fair amount of my time um, in my career building teams. And you know that you have found the right person when, it, you know, you, you build a team and suddenly things are happening. Things are, you know, being produced. Um, and you don't get, like, people complaining to you about X or Y or Z. Um, but that that's when I know that I've, you know, found the right person when the job right. gets done and the person is, and I'm, and I'm not listening to people complain constantly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel with every job, there's a point where you just have to swim in the water and either you do or you don't, and you can, you know, do all the questions you want. Uh, I've seen a lot of really, really qualified people drown and all due respect to them. And they've moved on, probably moved on to jobs that are amazing. Uh, that they could win the Olympics for doing, so uh, more power to them. Uh, but this is the most important question that I think we can ask anybody. What do you love about being on the greatest transfer pricing podcast out there, The Fiona Show? I mean, what do I not love about it? <laughs> and the answer to that would be nothing. <laughs> Well, Barbara, we love having you on the Fiona show as well. It's always fun to talk transfer pricing with you. Speaking of transfer pricing discussions, we have them all the time and we don't want you to miss a single one. Subscribe to the Fiona show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and we'll keep you in the know every week. While you're at it, check out our sister podcast, the Fiona show hot off the press, where we give you the scoop on transfer pricing headlines around the globe. Pretty cool. We know. 
Until next time, get organized, be proactive, and tackle those transfer pricing reports until they are ironclad. Because like our friend Willie Ong likes to say, it's not a question of if you will get audited, it's a question of when.